Welcome back to FreightWaves Global Supply Chain Week. I'm John Kingston, Editor-at-Large. At the start of the pandemic, the incredible importance of truck stops in the supply chain shot to the forefront of public attention. When the country was desperately worried about the supply of everything from toilet paper to basic foodstuffs, the role of the truck stops became ever more visible. What I learned when I covered oil for many years is that there are trade associations based in Washington whose overwhelming focus is supply. Supply of gasoline, supply of diesel, and during a pandemic, that becomes even more critical. Two of those organizations are the National Association of Truck Stop Operators, known as NATSO, and the Society of Independent Gasoline Marketers of America, known as SIGMA. The same person leads government affairs for both of those organizations. He's David Fialkoff, and he joins us here today at Global Supply Chain Week. David, welcome. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Okay. So, David, we're going to be looking forward today in this fireside chat mostly, but we also do need to look back. Was the pandemic the best of times or the worst of times for truck stop operators and the large gasoline retailers that make up a lot of the membership of Sigma? Uh, I, I think uh, it was probably both, depending on how you look at it, right? I think it was probably one of the more um, challenging times for the companies in terms of having enough people who can keep all of their locations open 24 hours a day, particularly during the um, uh, opening months of the pandemic. I remember uh, there was just, you know, not not quite you know, panic is the wrong word, but I think a, a a serious recognition of the importance of the moment and the complexities that it would entail um, uh, was something that in, in a lot of ways has reshaped the industry, uh, even in, in ways that are still being felt today. But but the, the opening kind of salvo was an extraordinarily kind of complex, challenging time for the industry. Um, but that all being said, uh, uh, Generally, the the pandemic um, uh, did not result in the the damage to the truck stop and and the retail fuel industry to the extent it did to others, such as hotels and restaurants and whatnot. Particularly on the truck stop side, you know, trucks kept moving during the pandemic. Diesel was down far less than gasoline, and to the extent gasoline was down, um, that 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 dip was muted. Uh, uh, somewhat in the truck stop space because during that initial stretch when when people weren't flying as much, they were driving more and they tended to purchase gasoline at highway locations where they were traveling a long distance. Um, uh, so, so overall, it was undoubtedly a very challenging time, um, but I think largely reflective of kind of the, the entrepreneurial spirit and grit of the people who make up the industry. They came out on the other side stronger than they were before. Let's give a little kind of overview of your membership. Of course, everybody, when they hit, think of truck stops, the first thing they think of is a TA and Loves and Pilot Flying J. But do you have members of NATSO who are simply, let's say, one truck stop operators? Sure. That that forms kind of the, the heartbeat of the industry. Um, uh, those kind of, you know, one to ten location operators. Um uh, so we, we un- undoubtedly work on, on their behalf, uh, 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 first and foremost. Um, and the, the good thing about our industry, unlike a lot of others, is that the things that are good for the small mom and pop guys tend to be good for the chains too, and vice versa, right? There's not a whole lot of airspace 
in between them uh, philosophically or or kind of policy-wise, um, which has enabled us as an industry, I think, to present a unified front and and punch above our fighting weight uh, to a degree that that um, not a lot of people fully kind of appreciate. All right, well, so let's talk about some of those regulatory issues. As I mentioned earlier, your focus is supply, supply, supply. You want to make sure uh, that your outlets, the members, uh, have plenty of gasoline, have adequate supply. I should say, plenty of gasoline, have adequate supplies of, of gasoline, but even more so, ad- adequate supplies of diesel. Now, one issue that you're very worried about are RVOs, renewable volume obligations. So let's take it through from sort of beginning to end. We know that there's a renewable fuel mandate. That's why when we go fuel up our cars, the uh, the, the pump always has this little sticker that says contains up to 10% ethanol. Uh, what is an RVO? And well, let, let, why don't you answer what is an RVO? And then we'll talk about how that impacts diesel. Sure. Uh, so an, an RVO stands for renewable volume obligation, which is kind of the the way that the federal low carbon fuel program known as the renewable fuel standard is implemented, where basically every refinery or every entity that produces fuel or imports fuel um, is obligated to blend into that fuel um, renewable fuel that has more attractive environmental characteristics, right? For diesel fuel, we're talking biodiesel and renewable diesel. For gasoline, usually we're talking ethanol. Um, but the RVO is basically the overall quantity of biofuels that the federal government mandates be blended into the petroleum fuel supply. Um, and, and in that respect, because of, of the kind of sensitivity and efficiencies of that market, the impact of the RVO on, on pricing and, um, and, and other just kind of market fundamentals is pretty significant. All right, now let's point out that you can meet an RVO obligation not just by blending, but you can meet it by buying. You can buy RVO credits. And I'm going to read a, a sentence that uh, in a story about RVOs that I wrote a couple of years ago for Freight Waves. A problem for the diesel market beyond the price of the RVO is the structure of the renewable fuels program. When the RVO gets high, it can incentivize making jet fuel instead of diesel. Let's note here that de- jet fuel and diesel are both disciplines. It can also incentivize exporting diesel rather than selling it into the domestic market. That is not new. It's a permanent feature of the market. But as the price of RVOs increases, it increases those incentives. Would you agree with that summation? I, I, I think that in, in a vacuum, it, it's probably not inaccurate to say those things. But I think it's a little bit reductive because it doesn't fully appreciate the extent to which diesel supply is extended by a higher RVO creating uh, favorable economics for buying and for producing, buying and blending biodiesel and renewable diesel that wouldn't be there otherwise, right? And and the the kind of competitive pressure that the availability of those alternative fuels puts on ULSD markets is also a significant one. But in any kind of free market system, um, where there's an, an arbitrage to be captured by exporting rather than keeping it domestic, um, uh, that's going to be taken advantage of. But I don't think that it's accurate to, to conclude that the renewable fuel standard and the RFS are, are responsible um, uh, for some of the pricing pressures that we've seen and, and some of the 
uh, export numbers that that may be higher than some people are comfortable with. I think there's a lot more at play there than the RFS. Right. So let's point out that an organization like yours welcomes things like biodiesel and welcomes renewable diesel. Biodiesel can only be blended into diesel to a certain percentage. Renewable diesel is essentially a barrel-for-barrel substitution for regular diesel. It can be poured into the truck directly. And you support these programs because you view them as incentivizing the production of either a finished diesel product like renewable diesel or a diesel blend stock like biodiesel. Is that a fair statement about where NASO stands? Yeah, we we also think that developed properly – low-carbon fuel programs should be structured in a way where the incentive is tethered to consumer adoption through price. In other words, these programs, if implemented properly um, over a period of time, can can result in a situation which is what we have now, where you have biofuel blends being sold at a discount to straight petroleum-based fuel, right? So if you go to any a typical rack where you you have an option of either buying B20, which is 20% biodiesel, 80% diesel, or straight ULSD, you're going to see that the B20 is priced cheaper than ULSD, right? That is not an accident. That is a function of an, of an incentive structure that was consciously designed to ensure that trucking companies pay less money for cleaner fuels. So we think as long as that incentive construct can kind of be perpetuated, then we think both the truck stop and the trucking industry should be well situated to navigate that that policy volatility. So what's happening with federal policy now that has you concerned? The, the renewable volume obligations change every year. I mean, it seems like as soon as they get set for one year, the battle begins on the following year. Uh, where do things stand? And as a as a, an association representing truck stop owners, and I go back to that same phrase I used before, supply, supply, supply. What are you concerned about? So to, to be honest, in, in terms of, of supply, and you alluded to it before, but but what concerns me the most is um, what what is clear now to be a pretty coordinated, sophisticated effort led primarily by the airline industry, the aviation sector, to try to capture some of the value and the incentives that the trucking industry has invested in over the last decade, decade and a half, um, and and trying to prompt investment to move away from over-the-road low-carbon fuels toward renewable jet fuel, what they call sustainable aviation fuel, or SAF, right, SAF. Um, uh, there was a provision in the Inflation Reduction Act that, that was passed on a partisan basis last year um, that provided a higher tax credit for blending uh, renewable jet fuel than was available for blending renewable diesel. And that tax credit being so much higher, we fear is going to prompt feedstock that would otherwise go toward producing biodiesel and renewable diesel to instead migrate and go toward renewable jet fuel because the tax credit for uh, 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 that product is higher. That to us makes very little sense from a supply perspective. Go ahead, John. I didn't mean to. Well, let me just interrupt and say that the, the kind of feedstocks you're talking about would be like animal fats, that that tallows, that sort of thing. Correct? Exactly. Use cooking oil, soybean oil, all of the all of the feedstock that currently goes into making biodiesel uh, uh, would now go toward making renewable jet fuel, and that could result in a meaningful dip in in supply availability. Right? I mean, we've 
the, the, the world has gotten too familiar with the limited refining capacity in the United States today. Um, and, and a lot of that refining capacity is buttressed by an increase in, in biodiesel and renewable diesel that could be coming online. Um, and we think the market is prepared to bring those, that additional line of supply online. Um, but if the aviation sector is coming in and, and basically getting taxpayers to underwrite their pillaging of our low carbon fuel supply, that is going to result in, I think, um, some unintended consequences on, on, on both the, the price and availability of diesel fuel, but also the environmental attributes of diesel fuel. Because as a practical matter, I don't think that diesel demand will go down. I think that, that every gallon of renewable diesel that goes away will be replaced by a gallon of petroleum diesel, right? So that conversation, I think, is kind of an important one that'll be happening over the next decade or so. Now, is this tax system in place? Are the incentives there, or you're concerned that there's going to be? I, I can't, I, I can't recall here whether you said that the incentive now is toward pushing more toward jet fuel rather than uh, that rather than diesel. Yeah. So there, there was a provision that that passed in the Inflation Reduction Act that gives them a higher credit. How much higher the credit is, though, will depend on a variety of details that are yet to be worked out by the Department of Treasury. A lot of what we're going to be working on with ATA and others is to try to ensure that that provision is implemented in a way that mitigates the extent to which there's feedstock migration from over-the-road uses to aviation uses um, and, and ensuring that that, that that credit is implemented kind of fairly and equitably. Yeah, the petroleum supply chain is very complex and an incentive one place can just have ripple effects all the way through. We're almost out of time, but I want to ask you one question. Of course, one of the key features of truck stops is parking. And we know that there's a lot of focus in um, in Washington on truck parking, various legislation that's been proposed. Uh, I know that your, uh, your members, some of your bigger ones are tout every year how many new spaces they added. What's happening with truck parking, uh, let's say, at, at the truck stops themselves? Can they can they do anything to add it beyond just buy more land? And uh, then they've got the problem of local resistance to new truck stops. Uh, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the addition of new, new parking in, in the U.S.? I'm, I'm certainly optimistic, right? I mean, the industry is growing. Uh, new locations are being built every year. Those locations have truck parking. You alluded to the fact that Congress is now looking at the issue. I think that um, uh, it's not unlikely that by the end of 2023, there will be a new program that, that provides direct taxpayer subsidies toward truck parking expansion. All of these we think are good things. Um, uh, and, and I think if we learned anything from the pandemic, it, it is that there are a lot of challenges to, um, to just being a professional truck driver that, that a lot of folks don't fully appreciate. Finding parking is one of them. Um, all of those things being said, I, I, I am oftentimes the party pooper when it comes to truck parking conversations, because I think that this is one of those things that um, if companies were more willing to pay for increased parking, then it is far more likely that there would be more parking, right? The reason that truck stops don't have twice the parking capacity that they do by and large is that the cost of land is higher than what they expect the return on the investment in the parking spaces would be. To your point, it's not inexpensive or uncomplicated to add truck parking, right? You got to go through a lot of NIMBY concerns at the local level 
um, uh, buying and maintaining the concrete to do it, keeping it clean. This is not cheap. Um, and the fact is, most truck drivers and most companies are disinclined to pay for parking. Um, uh, so it, it becomes something that that is almost uh, 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 detached from supply and demand fundamentals, because it really is fundamentally a free ancillary service that is provided to to customers who would theoretically then buy fuel or buy something in the store that would justify that. And that is the deal. But when you're unwilling or disinclined to pay for a service, you are going to be presented with situations where you have less of a supply of that good or service than you otherwise would, right? And now we've decided, I guess, that taxpayers should help kind of underwrite the provision of truck parking. That's something we're comfortable with um, uh, and, and, and think that the way Congress is going about that is sound. Um, but anyway, I think truck parking is a more complicated issue than, than a lot of people think. Um, the airline industry, you know, by and large, I don't hear a lot about pilots who, who, um, land in a, in a city after flying an airplane and don't have a hotel room. And the reason for that is that the airline that they work for makes sure that they have a hotel room everywhere and they cover the cost of that hotel room on behalf of the pilot. It doesn't fall to the pilot. Right. That is a structure that is just different from how the trucking industry operates with parking. And it creates some complications. We want to thank David Fialkoff. He's been our guest here today on the Freightways Global Supply Chain Week. David is the executive vice president of government affairs at NATSO, which is the Truck Stop uh, Owners Association, Truck Stop Operators Association, and Sigma, which is the big gasoline marketers association. David, thanks for joining us here. Thank you for having me, John. Good to talk to you. Keep watching more of FreightWaves Global Supply Chain Week. I'm John Kingston, editor-at-large. Thanks for joining us.